This week on Broadway for Sunday, December 22nd, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at foulspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So they say that there are two types of theater people. Yeah. <laughs> and Peter and Michael, I'm yeah. pretty sure, are diametrically opposed in this. Oh. And do you know what I'm asking about? No. Peter, how do you file your playbills? <laughs> <laughs> Alphabetically. <laughs> you alphabet I thought you filed them by opening night. No, no. I used to file my um cast albums by performance number, oh, which was really okay. weird. Um I understand somebody else does that too. Um and I, I, I think it was part of my divorce when my wife said, I want to listen to Camelot. What are you looking at right now? Fiddler, no, go to the left. Um, <laughs> carousel, no, go to the right. You know what I mean? So, I mean, <laughs> that is great. <laughs> Would the judge understand? Would the judge understand? <laughs> right. Well, it depends who the judge was. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. So, Michael, you file yours alphabetically as well. So, Peter and Michael are on the same page here, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think unless one does some kind of cross-referencing and has a card catalog system. I think that, Matthew uh, Murray has an Excel spreadsheet. Is that right? He's got an Excel oh, really? spreadsheet that, uh, that cross-tabs all the different, uh, right. all the different <laughs> playbills, but that's crazy. Well, I mean, if you don't do that, then alphabetically, I think, is absolutely the easiest way to find something quickly. And then you can, you know, do your other classifications uh, on your own but uh, it seems to me but the reason I brought this up when we before we started recording is it amused me uh, after our podcast last week I went to file my greater Clements playbill and since it was alphabetical it was right before greater tuna mm -hmm. and I thought well what a wonderful world of theater it is to have you know <laughs> this very serious dark play next Greater to tuna? the about a small town <laughs> <laughs> well that's true yes about a small town, small town yeah <laughs> you know but next to this delightful hilarious two-character vignette show about these these outrageously hilarious characters and and i just that, that kind of warmed my heart a little bit to see those two <laughs> right next to each other i was having lunch with robert goodman the other day uh, the producer of avenue q and many other shows and mm. um we were talking about playbills for a second and uh, one of the things i pointed out is it's very valuable for a, a writer who writes about theater to keep these playbills because when you go, uh, interview a person and you go back to the early playbills, you find out things that um, mm -hmm. they don't put in later playbills. Right. The, the best example, I may have mentioned this somewhere along the line, Bernadette Peters mentioned that when she was playing Dainty June and Gypsy, one time the girl playing Agnes, one of the Hollywood blondes, got sick. And because Dainty June has nothing to do in the second act, she substituted for Agnes that night. And what's really interesting when you think of it is Rose casting someone who looks like June. 
uh, in the Hollywood Blondes. Um, so, so little stories like that show up early in careers, and that's why it's worth keeping playbills if you're writing about theater. Hmm. So, um, Peter, I think uh, Matt Tamanini and I were talking uh, earlier last week, um, and I think that y- you've surpassed eleven thousand shows. Is that um, correct? It- It'll be close to. I'm close to twelve. I'm closer to twelve thousand now than eleven thousand. Okay, and did, is, does that mean that there are somehow eleven thousand to twelve thousand playbills? Oh no, no. Um, <laughs> I have to say that I don't keep ones like um, that the vineyard gives that are odd shaped. Any that are odd shaped, okay, I, I just yeah. don't keep because uh-huh. they drive me crazy. Yeah. Um, and frankly, um, I do prune. Um, I, I look at. Um, things like workshops or off off Broadway. I look to see if anybody has become famous and then I'll keep. But uh, if the names don't mean anything to me after a long period of time, uh, space has to be made, you know, so um, youth must be served. And uh, here we go with youthful playbills. They must be served. For a while, I kept everything, including the odd shaped ones. But um, I had to, uh, it was, well, I had to move and I had to, I had to, kind of go through and and mm. <laughs> kind of pair it and it was very very difficult to yeah what what i did one thing i did is that i saved um playbills when i saw a replacement cast yeah i do too because mm-hmm. i thought well if i don't save this then there may become there may come a time when i won't remember who i saw mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's one thing that um ibdb.com for example has never been completely great on replacements Mm -hmm. and and uh yeah so that's that's one thing that i use as a criteria for what i was going to keep and what i wasn't going to keep it's uh i I have not seen if greater tuna is playing around town this holiday season Uh, you mean tuna christmas uh, tuna christmas christmas right yeah uh no i haven't seen a production um mentioned anywhere for that matter and uh and i do look at um, all the catalogs um, online uh, to see where shows are playing. I love the Samuel French one, by the way. Um, they have a wonderful map, and it makes it very easy to navigate. Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah, so um, so I, I'm not saying they necessarily have a tuna Christmas, um, but nevertheless, um, I do check uh, various sites um, because I do say, mm, I feel like getting in the car and driving somewhere or flying somewhere. So, uh, so yeah, um, I can't say that I ran into a production of it, but I'm sure somebody was doing it. Um, it's hard to believe that somebody wouldn't. Um, and it is great fun. I even saw it in Charlotte, North Carolina once. Uh, it's, 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 uh, some of those sites, the, uh, the catalog sites are really good for, uh, uh, artistic directors and producing directors of yes, indeed. theaters, because if you want to go plan your season out, you should, you can, uh, easily, find out where a similar production uh, Mm -hmm. is playing Mm -hmm. and you might be able to go check it out to see if it if it's uh in your vision so michael you also got a chance to see the movie uh beautiful day in the neighborhood um the uh mr rogers sort of film yes so uh and there is a connection back to broadway so why don't you tell us about that well i saw it just yesterday and I, i first of all i really loved it overall i thought it was quite well done um tom hanks uh, several people have commented, of course, his voice is not 
exactly the same as Mr. Mm-hmm. Rogers. But once you get beyond that, I think he does a really beautiful job. And it's very well written and very well directed. But also, it has several theater people in it. And I didn't know it beforehand. So it was so much fun to see them pop up on the screen. Um, it has Marianne Plunkett, Jessica Hecht, Carmen Cusack, and Christine Lottie. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure there are a few others that I can't think of at the moment. But it's uh, a lot of it was shot in New York. And then a lot of it was shot in Pittsburgh, where... Um, yeah. Rogers did his show from. So I highly recommend it. And, and just as a little extra thrill, you will see these theater people pop up. And it's just so wonderful to see them. Uh, yesterday, I went to go see the Star Wars movie. Ah. And uh, the connection back to this is that Lin-Manuel Miranda's in one of the scenes. Oh, yeah. I did not in, know uh, that. One of the scenes. And he's uncredited. And uh, mm. through much sleuthing... Um, uh, and a quick glance, I was like, "Is that Lynn?" <laughs> and then also, he also wrote a song that was used in the movie. Huh. So he's uh, he's going full on Disney there, you know. <laughs> he's walking Ooh. around the lot out the the Disney lot and uh, picking up tons of work. So, um, and of course, the big uh, cat in the room is that we haven't talked about cats, but we haven't seen it yet. So we just talked about it before we started recording. Uh, perhaps uh, we'll talk about that in upcoming episodes. Uh, Peter's going to go see it. I'm going to go see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might drag Michael to it. <laughs> so. <laughs> so let's get into last week's trivia answer. Peter, why don't you give us the answer? Sure. Uh, the question said the two Tony winning musicals um, that won their prizes nine years apart, both start their overtures in the same but most atypical way. Explain why while also naming the musicals. Well, a little night music, the 1973 winner, and nine, the 1982 victor, each starts its overture with the cast members singing La La La. So, Tony Janicki returned to his usual top spot as the first to answer, followed by Jack Leshner, Phil Bond, Ingrid Gammerman, Freda Bamowitz, and Greg Christensen. All right. So, there is the answer for last week's trivia. Uh, later on in this broadcast, we will talk about the new question coming mm-hmm. up. But until then, let's start some reviews here. Michael, you got down to New York Theater Workshop to see Sing Street. So tell us about uh, this production. This is a very enjoyable show, uh, despite its flaws. It's by the team that brought us Once the Musical. So if you like that, I I strongly suspect you will enjoy this one as well. Except that um, the main issue here is that uh, well, two things. There isn't much plot. And what plot there is, I, I have to say, is not terribly original. It's about this boy, uh, this young boy who is living in Dublin and it's uh, it's the 80s and it's, uh, you know, the economy is depressed and his family in particular is not doing well financially because his father is uh, an architect, but there's no work because the the area is so economically depressed. Um, and then in addition to that, there turns out to be uh, family drama in terms of the uh, parents, uh, well, are having troubles because it seems like the mother is having an affair with her new boss. Um, so there's a lot going on, but it's not not terribly original. And um, so... Uh, 
the thing that makes it different is it's interesting is the fact that it is Dublin and and one of the best things about the show is the the milieu of it which is captured very well in terms of some of the performances uh, specifically the uh, I guess the central character Connor, played by Brennick O'Connor, this this young performer. Uh, first of all, he has to use that phrase uh, from uh, Long Day's Journey into Night. He has the map of Ireland on his face, mm-hmm. uh, and he also uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure if it's his actual accent, but he but the Irish accent that he uses is. 100% authentic to my ears and that helps tremendously. Uh some of the other characters um and actors fit that description as well but then there are th- there's every conceivable uh type of person in ethnic type and uh and it's a very diverse cast in in many different ways and I didn't feel that the uh that the Dublin Irish aspect of it was consistently maintained, which in this case seemed to me um, a flaw because, as I said, that's that's sort of what makes it seem different. Uh, the way they're they're doing this production, it, it just almost might as well have taken place in New York, um, and this extends to. Uh, I'm not only talking about. Uh, you know, actual race differences, because, for example, Gus Halper, who is a, a tremendously talented and appealing young actor who I, I've seen in a couple of other things, he plays Connor's brother and he just does not seem like his brother in terms of speech and he doesn't seem or in terms of looks. Um, and so that that kind of took me out of it a little bit. I think it would have been more powerful if if it had seemed more authentically Irish across the board. Perhaps the Irish rep should have, <laughs> should have done uh. this. <laughs> that's just something that occurred to me. Uh, but that said, uh, it is a wonderful story about how Connor, uh, he, he uses music to try to escape his situation. He, he, try, he tries to form a band and he does form a band. And, uh, the other characters are the other band members. And then, as I mentioned, his parents are in it. There's a, a character of a Christian brother uh, who uh, is the head of the principal of the school where Connor winds up going because he had been going to a private school, but then his parents run out of money. So he's uh, he has to go to a what we would call, a, I guess, a public school uh, run by the Christian brothers because that's what they can afford. And this brother Baxter, played by Martin Moran, is a is a quite a reprehensible, very very domineering and uh, bullying, uh, physically abusive person. Uh, so uh, I actually didn't think the character was that well written. He he seemed to be a little too much of a cliche to me, but fortunately we have Martin Moran playing him and he's the best of the best. So he did a, as good a job as anyone could with it. Um, and then the rest of the characters are uh, the only other, I guess, shred of plot is that Connor does become enamored of this 
girl who is hanging out around school. It turns out she's left school uh, because she's got her own issues and uh, she wants to go off to London and, and, and be a model. And he falls in love with her, even though she wants to go off to London with her boyfriend. Um, so the question is whether they're going to get together. There's a lot of very familiar tropes in the story. Um, uh, n- nothing that you haven't seen before. And it might have been, um, I think it might have helped if there was something a little unique and special about it uh, in the way that once had uh, several elements of that plot that were, that were not so cliched. But the music and the lyrics uh, by Gary Clark and John Carney are incredibly enjoyable so many songs that the minute you hear them (laughs) you feel like they're old favorites and you can start singing along almost immediately because Mm -hmm. the the hooks are so catchy uh and so delightful um and the performances are great and the direction uh by rebecca how is her name pronounced is that it? Tashman. T A I C H M A N. I think so. Yeah, I think it's I'm, I apologize. I really have to learn how to pronounce her name. Uh, the, the stage of the uh, New York Theater Workshop is beautifully used. The entire stage is used. You know how sometimes they put up like a little false proscenium or they'll create wings or backstage space? None of that here. The entire space is open. And, uh, oh, another... Um, Another thing that I think really was a flaw of this show is that um, it seemed to me that at least some of the time that the band members were not actually playing. Um, it, it Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, I, w- I was sure of it in terms of the drummer. There is this fellow who's in the background, this one fellow um, of all of them who's in the background. I don't think he has a single line. And he's the drummer. Uh, and they keep reeling his, his, him out on his drum set and then back off again. But I can tell uh, the sound of, of drums live and taped uh, to me is very, very different. So that's what made it completely obvious to me. Obviously, uh, in terms of electric guitars, it's much harder to tell because they're all through amplification anyway. Um, but uh, while there were moments where definitely I could tell that Brendan O'Connor was playing the guitar, uh, actually playing it while he was singing little solo moments, it seemed to me that in the uh, when the band was playing all together, that for at least some of the time, I would say most of the time that they were not actually playing, even though they seemed to be. I mean, the, the drummer was doing the figures that I was hearing. I could see him doing them. And the fingering of the guitars looked looked accurate. So I think that unfortunately it must have been, um, I suspect maybe they made this decision just because for acoustic reasons. Uh, and maybe they didn't initially intend to do that, or maybe they did, and perhaps some of these uh, other actors are not skilled enough as musicians to do it that way. But um, I think it was more obvious here than in, uh, than is the case. Uh, you know, for Rock of Ages on Broadway, I, I do think that there is more live playing uh maybe not every moment but a lot more uh and this show would have benefited if they had been able to figure out a way to do that okay uh peter do you have anything to say about sing street 
Well, one of the things that really impressed me is um, that this is based on a movie, and uh, I was surprised to see that it was a 2016 movie. Mm-hmm. It was released in uh, literally on St. Patrick's Day, which is fitting, uh, in 2016, which means that it took fewer than four years for this show to get on. And I think that is really quite something. Now, granted, I'm sure a lot of the music um, uh, came from the film, but nevertheless, these days, getting it on in in fewer than four years is uh, quite an achievement because we certainly know shows that uh, are 10 years of warning. And um, so, but, you know, when you have a good track record and uh, at least there's enough of a track record here with the Tony winning musical, so one can understand why Jim Nicola, who's one of our best artistic directors um, in the country, um, said, yes, yes, we're going to do this. And uh, it certainly um, bore a lot of fruit. I was very impressed um, with uh, the um, character of Brendan. This is... um, this is Connor's brother, and what has happened is that he has gone out in the world uh, to make his fortune, to make his career, and failed. And as a result, he's become an agoraphobic, mm-hmm. and he doesn't want that to happen to his brother. And there's a marvelous scene at the end where he encourages him essentially to saying, don't be like me. I did feel that the horrible uh, brother Baxter, um, <laughs> who um, just abrogated responsibility and was terrible with his authority. And um, Michael said it best when he said bully, Uh, he's terrible to these boys. And these, so many of these guys are paper tigers that um, they retreat into a a world where they have the um, God on their side, so to speak. And uh, they seem to be speaking for God, or at least they give us that impression or they make us believe that. And um, at the end, there's a bit of a comeuppance, but nothing much. And I wish there were more of one. Um, He's basically just told off and he seems to accept it in a way that I don't think he would. I think he would say, um, who do you think you're talking to? Uh, I am a minister of God, et cetera, et cetera. So so I did feel there was a problem there. Michael's right. The story is quite, well, I shouldn't say Michael's right. I should say I agree with Michael. Um, But anyway, (laughs) um, that um, it, it is a very slight story and there's a familiarity about it. But even though my girlfriend walked out in a mission, she said to me, if there's a cast album, I'd like to hear it. Yeah. Because the, the music is very catchy and, and quite good and very well performed. So it's a hot ticket. It's hard to get into. And certainly the audience I was with uh, on a Saturday night were really up for it and had a wonderful time. So uh, very nicely performed. Uh, and uh, congratulations to everybody for doing work so quickly. And uh, uh, maybe Jim said to them, uh, we're opening in December of 19. So, uh, and the famous expression, work takes as long as you have the time to do it. They didn't quite break the record of Two Gentlemen of Verona, Verona, which um, John Ware and Galt McDermott started writing in March of 71, and they opened at the St. James in December of 71. Hmm. Again, on February 28th, they didn't have a note or a word. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, anyway, but still, these days, four years, terrific. I do have to give a negative note about my experience when I arrived at the theater. Uh, I I hate to say this, but I just need to report it. Um, The show was scheduled to start at eight on on Friday, the 20th. And I got there at around 730 or whatever. And the house uh, did not open till 
743, which may sound may not sound so bad, but the lobby at New York Theater Workshop yeah. is very, very tiny. And it was packed uh, to sardine level by the time they finally opened the house. And it, it, it felt claustrophobic and also a little dangerous. And I asked uh, the house manager at intermission or after the show i don't remember now and you know why is that and she said it was because of a music rehearsal on stage and also because one of the actors had to be preset on stage which i didn't even notice did you notice that no that actor you just mentioned gus halper was apparently preset on stage but in such a way that neither peter nor i noticed it so what was the point of it? Uh, so I said, well, she, so she gave me all these reasons and she also said it wasn't her decision. And I said, I understand your, it's not your decision, but I think those are not good reasons. I think when you have a lobby this small, especially that you have to open the house at half hour. And I, so many places I see that not happening anymore. And I think it's very disrespectful to the audiences. And I wish that it would stop. So, um, uh, Matt Tamanini and I uh, uh, talked this week on Today on Broadway when the reviews came out for Sing Street that the reviews were especially constructive and kind. <laughs> um, and we are thinking because there's been so much rumor even before the previews started with this thing that uh, Sing Street might be transferring to Broadway. Um, so... Um, the the Brantley Review down at New York Theater Workshop uh, gave a lot of constructive criticism, much along the same lines as what uh, the both of you were saying about the story needing to be fleshed out. So, um, uh, I, as Peter mentioned, it's a very, very hard ticket to get. And um, if you are unable to get it, perhaps you will see it again in its next incarnation in the next year or so. Broadway Radio is brought to you today by listeners like you. Patrons who support us at patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. There's many different ways to support Broadway Radio, so get over to patreon.com slash Broadway Radio to support us today. All right, so next up, Peter, you got over to the Peter J. Sharp Theater at Playwrights Horizons to see The Thin Place, so tell us about this. Well, um, this is Lucas Nath's new play. Um, that's how it's pronounced, right? Yes, I believe so. Okay. That's what I've heard, yeah. Um, for those who don't know how it's spelled, it's H, N-A-T-H. So as a result, um, one can be easily confused. I also wonder if he named two of his characters um, because they represent his initial. One is Linda and one is Hilda. So anyway, Hilda is uh, a young woman who uh, had a grandmother who um, had a very strange demand of her. And she would write a word on a notebook, press the notebook to her chest, and say, guess what word this is? Well, I did some um, <laughs> research, and I found that there are 171,476 words uh, in the Oxford Dictionary. And um, so the chances are one out of 171,476. The girl is going to get the... Um, the word correctly, uh, but what what it is, the grandmother is saying, I want you to learn how I think. I want you to listen and connect with me so that afterwards, after I die, then indeed uh, you can still communicate with me. Now, one of the strange things here is that, and by the way, strange is going to come up a lot in this play. One of the strange things is that um, 
Hilda's mother is incensed by this and throws the grandmother out of the house and says, you are never to see my daughter again. Now, it seems to me an overreaction. It's never made clear that whose mother this is, meaning is it the mother's mother or is it the father's mother? I suspect it's the father's mother if the mother is throwing um, the, the grandmother out of the house. Um, I, I can't see a woman doing that to her. But still, I think it's an overreaction. But anyway, Hilda is enough interested in uh, her grandmother after she passes and only mentions in passing, I mean, as a quick aside almost, that her mother has been missing for a year that nobody's been able to find her. And she, she doesn't even seem to be remotely disturbed by it, um, which is a little surprising. But anyway, she goes to Linda, who's a psychic. And uh, so you have the usual thing, uh, I am hearing, uh, do you know a Betty? You know, that type of uh, thing. And Linda seems to have about a 75% success rate when she's um, doing these um, questions. And it's enough to Hilda to say, okay, this woman knows what she's doing, and maybe she is connecting me with my grandmother, whom I miss and whom I love. Well, anyway, Linda and Hilda become friends to the point of which Linda says, listen, um, by the way, this is hardly dialogue, but anyway, the concept is um, I, I, what I do is I use tricks. Um, there's there's a, a way of finding out things that um, – it's a, it's a something that's a skill, but there's really nothing to it. By the way, some people are going to say that's true of this play, that there's nothing to it, but that's another story. Anyway, um, you know, a magician is famous for not revealing tricks. So I'm a little surprised that um, Linda, no matter how much, how much affection she may show um, for Hilda, I'm really not certain that she would tell her this. And ironically enough, later there's a visitor to her house, a woman named Sylvia, who um, accuses her of this, and Linda is outraged that she would even suggest it. Now, maybe this is one of those things like, you know, uh, I can criticize my family, but if you try, um, I'll cut you down. <laughs> you know, only I can do it. Um, maybe that's what's going on. There's even an occasional moment, and I may be reading into it. I'll be the first to admit it, where we think that um, Sylvia and uh, Linda may have a sexual relationship. There are hints of that. But anyway, there's an explosion um, in between the two of them, and uh, Sylvia storms off, and uh, Linda follows. And minutes later, they come back laughing. They've made up. Um, you know, it, it, it seems a little implausible that uh, considering – the, the force of that fight that they would make up so quickly and uh, let it go. But again, you know, who knows what their relationship is? We're not really sure. Well, the interesting thing about the play more than anything else is the fact that um, Hilda speaks uh, a long, long monologue that may be 20 minutes into this 90 minute play. And then for about a half hour, she literally says only one word. And then later in the play, she takes over with another monologue. So um, it, it really is a, a strange situation. There's the word strange again, where uh, we have an actress who says so much, so little, and so much again. And what she does at the end of the play is tell essentially a ghost story. In fact, um, there's even something very similar to the film and musical 
ghost that seems to be happening. But I tell you, she's this actress who plays her, uh, Emily Cass McDonald, does it very, very well and with great skill. And I'm going to also um, give some uh, credit to Les Walter, uh, Waters, who's the director, uh, for making it a really eerie tale that sucks you in. I mean, everything gets more and more taut, T-A-U-T. And it really is a an achievement with both Emily Cass McDonald and Les Waters, the director. Um, everybody else is in it fine too. Um, ironically enough, I haven't mentioned Jerry, um, who is related to Linda and, um, and he drops by with Sylvia. They both arrive at the same time. So you assume they're a married couple. They're not. I mean, <laughs> but they arrive at the same time and they don't even say, gee, isn't it funny? We both arrive at the same time as people tend to do when they do that. Um, when people don't know each other, um, but anyway, um, Jerry is a blustery guy who really comes down to brass tacks and Trini Sandoval does a very good job. The esteemed actress, Randy Danson, uh, who's had quite a career and has received awards like the Obie and the Helen Hayes and the Barrymore, um, really a very esteemed actress, um, plays Linda and does it very well. I was very confused by her accent, which sounded Jamaican to me, but they established she came from England and, uh, there's a lot of interesting talk about getting a visa um, when you're a psychic. When you put down, they say occupation, you put down <laughs> psychic. <laughs> They're suspicious, which I think is a very good line because uh, this Lucas Snape certainly has a lot of um, a lot of wonderful perceptions as we've learned from his other plays, um, a, a Doll's House too, uh, certainly uh, even from Hillary and Clinton and um, the best of the bunch, uh, I think, um, the Christians. So uh, it's wonderful that he's writing so much. Um, this one, you do come out scratching your head saying, what was that? What was the point of that? And I'm not sure that I'm clear on that or if, um, if many other people will be too, but, um, it's an entertaining 90 minutes. So I found an article from 2013, in the New York times that, uh, is a little, uh, uh, snapshot on Lucas and it does say in the article, his name is pronounced Nath, N-A-Y-T-H. Right. Uh -huh. So we know that for sure, <laughs> that the paper of record has determined this. But uh, interesting here is that uh, he, it, the opening graph says, Lucas Nath didn't plan a career as a playwright. He arrived in, at New York University determined to pursue a pre-med degree in 1997. So uh, he's an NYU guy and uh pre-med wow <laughs> and ended up interesting? Uh, ended up doing uh this uh, and he does it very well yeah exactly so uh let's see michael you uh got into the spirit of the season and saw the new york pops christmas uh concert was that over at carnegie yes <clears throat> It was called uh, Frank and Ella Christmas. So that that this was a kind of special evening with two wonderful guests, Capapia Jenkins, oh, whose Broadway credits include two flops, <laughs> The Civil War and The Look of Love, and two hits, Newsies and Martin Short, Fame Becomes Me. Uh, also, Caroline or Change. Uh, yes. Uh, so she... Uh, I've always loved her voice. She's got the most beautiful, smooth, velvety, gorgeous voice. And it was great to hear her again. I had not, I guess the last time I heard her was probably in Newsies. Um, and that was a while ago. So that was, I was determined to 
or certainly looking forward to seeing this show, if only for her. But also Tony Desaire was the other guest. And he is not a musical theater person, but he's been around for quite some time doing the cabaret and club circuit as a uh, jazz uh, crooner and also pianist kind of person and he's very very talented so he fit in perfectly with the uh theme of the of the show because he uh, he, as as you might imagine he handled most of the frank sinatra material and capathia did the ellis stuff uh but it was really wonderful evening with lots of favorites uh in the in the in the program lots of contemporary and older Christmas music, a couple of Hanukkah tunes as well with that beautiful, beautiful orchestra playing and the chorus. And um, one of the highlights was definitely uh, Tony did towards the end. He he did something that was just delightful. He did 20 variations on jingle bells. And uh, some of them were just variations in terms of different types of music. So he played a a ragtime version. I mean, we're talking about maybe like 20 seconds of of each ragtime. He did a blues version, waltz version, a boogie woogie version. But then he also did um, (laughs) several versions in the style of famous uh, musical artists. Uh, and, And he sang as well as played and did spot on imitations of Randy Newman, Neil Diamond, Elton John, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, and maybe about 10 others. It was just hilarious. The, the audience just loved it. And it was so wonderful to inject a, um, a moment of humor uh, at the at this sort of the eleven o'clock spot of this of the show, uh, it just lifted it to a whole nother level. And the, uh, I mean, what he did was was so wonderful musically, but then also the the humor of it on top of that, the 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 roof just basically came off, came off the place. And every time he launched into a new imitation, especially the ones that were completely spot on, like his Neil Diamond was so perfect that it might have been Neil Diamond on stage there. So it was a delightful, delightful evening. Um, just two nights. Uh, so uh, so it's over. If you missed it, you missed it. But um, today I'm going to Birdland for a swinging Birdland Christmas with Clea Blackhurst and Billy Stritch and Jim Caruso. And that you haven't missed. It's continuing actually through Christmas Day. Uh, they have performances through Christmas Day, and those three are guaranteed to put on a fabulous show. They also now have an album of this program, which is doing very well. And uh, so I would suggest that if you uh, have a slot in your calendar for Christmas entertainment that you haven't filled yet, uh, I'm sure this is going to be just really, really wonderful and something I'm so much looking forward to. All right. So uh, we'll put a link to the um, a swinging Birdland Christmas in there, so you can quickly get to that information and book your tickets immediately. Um, Peter and Michael also got to the great holiday classic, Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven, at the United <laughs> <Theater> Company. <laughs> so, Peter, why don't you get us started on Halfway Bitches? 
Well, yeah, that's a very good point. You know, I mean, we usually see a slew of shows that celebrate Christmas, Conniker and Kwanzaa, and they uplift us and make us happy. But um, (laughs) 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 this is a play that um, may bring to mind a song from White Christmas uh, when Bob Wallace sings to Betty Haynes that we should count our blessings instead of sheep because halfway bitches go straight to heaven. We'll do this. This is a magnificent play. Now, First off, it it seems odd that I'm going to bring up the musical on the 20th century, but I will because in that Broadway producer Oscar Jaffe is approached by a doctor who has written a play, Mr. Jaffe. I call it Life in a Metropolitan Hospital, and we laugh because it sounds like a deadly drama that's sure to be a dud, but once again, we see taint what you do, but the way that you do it. And... um, Stephen Adley Gurgis fits that description. I mean, he's had eight off-Broadway plays, three revivals, and one Broadway show, all since 2000. And so he's one of our most prolific playwrights, but he's one of our best ones, too, because he can make life in a metropolitan women's halfway house mesmerize us, even for three hours that he keeps us there. And uh, again, John Ortiz, the director, um, really deserves a great deal of credit because the production doesn't nearly seem that long. Um, I use this, um, what I'm going to say a lot when I talk about politics, um, that, you know, uh, that um, the Beatles were four people who couldn't get along. And they, um, after about 10 years, I mean, it was over. The Kingston Trio, after about four years, one of them left. And so that's three people who couldn't get along. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, two people who couldn't get along. Well, imagine what it's going to be like in a halfway house where you have 11 people who have had a lot of problems, drug addiction, homelessness, uh, family issues, uh, incest, what have you. Imagine what it's like when 11 people have to get along. Well, needless to say, they're not going to. And um, if drama is conflict, uh, Mr. Gurgis certainly knows how to write that conflict. And it begins immediately when one of our best actresses of the day, Lisa uh, Colon Zayas, plays Sarge. Uh, now, this is because she was in the military and she's a tough uh, young woman. And she tells off Venus, the male to female transsexual. and yeah, it's it's wonderful to see that this actor, Esteban Andres Cruz, doesn't make this character a cliche. And I thought that was terrific. But Sarge is transphobic, and yet she's smart enough to cover herself and claims that her real beef with Venus is taking a spot in the shelter that could have been taken, that could have been given to a genuine mm. woman, quotation marks around that, who's uh, suffering on the street. So one of one of the great strengths of this playwright is that he shows people who we may not assume in our um, ignorance and uh, prejudice. We may not think that they're intelligent people and they may have street smarts, but that still puts them on the spectrum of smart. And that's really important that he really shows us that. And we always find ourselves asking the question, who knows what these people might've become had they have the opportunities that many of us have had. So again, count your blessings, you know. Uh, um, also, he's very good at giving you a character who you think is wrong 
And after a while, when the person continues talking, say, "Oh, gee, they're, 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 yeah, that's a valid point," you know. Um, and this is true of not just the, shall we say, incarcerated characters, but the ones who tend to them too. They get at moments that make us dislike them, and then they follow them with scenes where we understand how they got that mm-hmm. way. So we f- we follow our contemplative sympathy. And then something happens that we have more contempt and something happens where we have more sympathy still. So one of the things too is, you know, as you keep watching, you really feel that the word halfway house, the term halfway house is a euphemism because you you can't see some of these people ever getting out. They're not close to being released. Um, And what happens when they are? Um, It might even be harder for them in the real world to manage a job and stay with it and lead even semi-productive lives. But, but these are not people you write off uh, at all uh, because he's so good in making you care about them, which is really something because I doubt that the doctrine on the 20th century could make us care about the people in the Metropolitan Hospital. So I, I wish this play would have a future. I don't know about its commercial prospects. There are a lot of people in the cast. I think there are like 18 um, so, uh, it's going to be an expensive show to run and Lord knows it ain't a happy go lucky night at the theater, <laughs> but it certainly is a wonderful one. All right. Michael, what did you think? You know, Peter, your point about, uh, Lennon and McCartney not getting along and, uh, Simon and Garfunkel not getting along and, and both of them breaking up, uh, I, <laughs> you know, that's specifically mentioned in Sing Street. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, so right. maybe that's why that was at the top of your mind. But I, but absolutely, it's true here. What you have here is you could look at it as a very large, extremely dysfunctional family mm-hmm. of these people in this halfway house. I'm going to read the um, all of the names of the cast because you will note if you've seen other plays by Stephen Adley Gerges. Uh, Gurgis, excuse me. And, and by the way, that, that, that is the way to pronounce it. Gurgis, uh, even though I just did it wrong for a moment. Uh, and it took me a while to learn that one, but then I saw him interviewed on TV somewhere. So that's how I got that. And Peter got it right too. Stephen Adley Gurgis. Um, he tends to use, uh, the same actors a lot yeah. in, in several of his shows. So you're going to recognize many of these names, Victor Almanzar, David Ansuelo, Elizabeth Canavan, Sean Carvajal, uh, Patrice Johnson, Chevanis, Molly Collier, Liza Colon Zayas, Esteban Andres Cruz, Greg Keller. I'm, I'm, I, he may be new to uh, uh, Adley Gurgis. I'm not sure. Uh, Wilhelmina Olivia Garcia, Christina Poe, Neil Tyrone Pritchard, Elizabeth Rodriguez, Andrea Siglowski, Benja K. Thomas, Viviana Valeria, Pernell Walker, and Kara Young. Now, that is a huge cast for an off-Broadway show, uh, and even for Broadway show nowadays. Uh, and so, bravo to the Atlantic Theater Company for for you know providing a showcase for this. But he, Stephen Ali Gurgis, is absolutely one of my favorite contemporary playwrights. I think mm-hmm, you would mm-hmm. agree. His characters are so rich. Um, and he is able to write that street patois mm-hmm. with such a hundred percent conviction. And I don't know the complete details as to how he knows all of that. So, well, I, I presumably he, 
came from that world um, and I guess has stayed in touch with it. But I swear, um, you know, I, I, it's not that often that I come in contact with people like that in real life, but it does happen because it is New York City. Mm-hmm. And from what I can tell, it's so, so authentic and so, uh, but also difficult to write in that patois and also make it, um, uh, you know, not not just fall into a collection of people screaming curses at each other. Um, but he somehow manages to do that. And even the title of this play, Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven, comes from uh, ostensibly from a poem that one of the youngest uh, residents of the halfway house reads sort of in, at the end of the first scene, I believe. Uh, and she reads a poem that's very much written in, in, in street language, but it's so, so expressive and shows so much talent uh, on on her part i mean obviously it was actually written by Stephen Ali Gurgis <laughs> but uh but it's it, you know it, it does show what what peter mentioned before that these people their circumstances are horrible in their lives and 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 there's issues of substance abuse and and uh sometimes domestic abuse etc cetera, etc cetera. so they have not had a good time and and as, and as far as actual education they may have had very little and not very high quality education, but that doesn't mean that they don't have native intelligence and native talents. Uh, and so many of them might have really been something if circumstances had been different. So I, uh, th- a lot of his plays are are about that, uh, and a lot of them I, I would say are really more um, character studies than focused on the actual plot. In this case, uh, again, like um, Sing Street, not much of a plot. There's a um, we are told that the administrator of the halfway house, Miss Rivera, played by Elizabeth Rodriguez, very very well, um, is being wooed for another job elsewhere, and we get to understand that she doesn't want to go because it's challenging and extremely difficult as it is to be in this place and to be the administrator of it. It is a family in a way, and she can't tear herself away from these mm-hmm. people. And it and her performance is so beautiful because she seems very harried. She doesn't seem happy. She hardly ever smiles. I think she never smiles throughout the entire evening. And you're like, why are you staying there? But but I think people in a situation like that can can become like that. That she's very um professional but very hard edge and she has to almost remove herself from the from the heightened emotions and all of the violence and 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 confrontations that are happening among the people in this halfway house but she she just she for all that she can't go she wants to stay there and then another um uh little bit of a plot strain is that we're told uh i guess this is not surprising that the People who live in the community, uh, you know, the, the the people who live in the neighborhood, are certainly not happy that this halfway house exists, and I guess have always been trying to and are continuing to try to get it out. Um, but that's it's, there's no resolution on that, so it's not a a major plot point in that sense. It just kind of framework for this really beautiful, in the, the latest in the series of beautiful beautifully written character studies by Stephen Adley Gurgis. So, um, 
The other uh, Stephen Adley Gurgis play that I know is between Riverside and Crazy, which I loved, and I could yes. not believe that it didn't get wider acclaim in a Broadway production. Um, but it seems that uh, housing seems to be an issue that Gurgis focuses on. So, and uh, and that even came up a few times. There's a couple of lines about that in uh, very funny lines in, uh, I'm sorry, what's the title? Our Lady of 121st? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. So uh, we'll have uh, a link to Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven at the Atlantic Theater Company. Hard to get ticket as well, but uh, seemingly really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter, you got over to Signature uh, the Alice Griffin Jewelbox Theater to see uh, Donya Love's new play, One and Two. So tell us about this. Well, um, the title means the fact that um, black, gay, and bisexual men have a one in two chance of contracting AIDS. And that's um, a, a pretty harrowing statement when you hear the other odds for other races and other people, mm-hmm. and um, it's not nearly as high. Uh, what we have here is a cast of three. So we have three men who play um, a million parts. Um, and um, so they're terrific, all of them. Jamil Dobson, Leland Fowler, and Edward Malware, um, not Malware, Malware without the L, <laughs> and um, really terrific job um, at um, what it's like to have this um, cross to bear. And one of the reasons Donya Our Love wrote it is because he indeed is HIV positive, um, and um, he's been so for 10 years, and he wanted to mark that unfortunate anniversary by writing this play. And um, so it's done on a very simple set, and uh, which sort of looks like a steam room. Um, it isn't quite that, but um, but it's a situation where they're waiting to be chosen for some. We're not quite sure what um, for the longest time, and then when it's revealed what the person is chosen for, well. Uh, <laughs> that becomes uh, quite potent. Um, it's a, in a way, um, it seems to be a slight play in the sense that it, it doesn't, it, it's like 70 minutes maybe. Um, it, it, if it's longer, it seems shorter to me. And in the best sense of the word, I'll grant you. But um, some may feel it's a little too slight because it one and two does have one agenda to talk about, and, and that is uh, about getting AIDS. What I didn't quite find in the play is the fact that as time has gone on, I'm sorry to say that younger generations don't fear this disease. Um, the inheritance really makes a good point in how terrible it was back in the 80s when so many of our friends and relatives um, contracted it. And I, I know from teaching at the University of Cincinnati College of Music that uh, so many of the kids, they say, yeah, so I'll take a pill, you know. Oh, they've got this new drug I can take before I go out and have sex, and I'll be fine, you know. And it's it's eerie for those of us who lived through the 80s um, to see this. Well, uh, I, I'm uh, surprised that the more isn't made of this in this play. But what there is there is choice, um, and uh, quite good. And Stephen Walker-Webb, who's the director, did a very nice job in casting and a very nice job in uh, orchestrating the way these gentlemen are uh, around the stage. Uh, they make very good stage pictures for three people and uh, in a set that occasionally surprises you with something jutting out here and there. But uh, 
Um, uh, again, maybe not a Christmas play, not a Christmas play, but still a very good night of theater. All right. So that is one and two over at the uh, Signature Center, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, Peter and Michael on Monday afternoon got over to uh, the Majestic for Hal Prince's memorial. So, uh, Michael, do you want to start us off on Hal? Sure. I really made a point of being there because he was a towering figure in theater. And I, I guess we say this fairly often, especially lately uh, with uh, we're now at a time when many of the greats from the golden age are passing, but this was really the end of an era. Um, he was legendary as both a director and a producer on Broadway. Uh, 21 Tony Awards, is that correct? I think so. Mm. Yeah. Uh, this was a beautiful memorial service with a 16-piece orchestra uh, conducted by Jason Robert Brown. Uh, it started out with a, a large photo of Hal on stage and uh, then the overture, which I believe was the overture used for... Uh, um, Prince of Broadway. Prince of Broadway, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was played again, uh, conducted by Jason Robert Brown, and they used some of the projections from that show w- with the titles of the shows just uh, going by on the screen one after another, just appearing and disappearing, and and the the level and the 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 broadness of the achievement. Uh, the, uh, of this one person as either director and or producer is just unfathomable. Um, he, uh, th- there have been many reports on it, so I, I won't give a full report of the whole thing, but some of the highlights uh, were that Joel Gray opened this show. And I think that was very appropriate because Cabaret, uh, I think everyone agrees, is really an epical moment in in musical theater and his uh, first success as a director after four shows did not succeed, at least at the box office. Yes. Yes. And then of course it, you know, it's so interesting that he did not, uh, direct the film version, which was directed by another towering figure of mm-hmm. the theater, Bob Fosse. And so you have these two versions of, uh, this epic making work, this incredible piece by Kander and Eb and Joe Masteroff originally. And you cannot uh, over, it would be impossible to overestimate how much it affected uh, the theater and the musical theater in particular. So I think, and the fact that Joel Gray is still very much with us, now a director himself, uh, that he opened the show and then also closed it. Uh, uh, What happened towards the end of the show was that the full company with amazing just amazing names of people who worked on uh, Hal Prince shows over the decades. They all sang our time from Merrily We Roll Along. And then after that, they remained on stage. Uh, Mr. Gray came out again and sang just to little piano accompaniment or whatever. Auf Wiedersehen, a bientôt. And then everyone turned upstage and faced the screen, which had had Hal's name on it uh, for the entire show pretty much and then uh the picture the photo of him came back up and the audience stood and applauded for we timed it over four minutes 
it was his last ovation and it was just heartwarming and incredible uh, as far as the highlights of the of the uh, presentation itself i would say one of them was definitely the, that the three leads from merrily we roll along uh, Jim Walton, Lonnie Price, and Ann Morrison came back to do Old Friends with the original choreography and in the original key, I think. Um, mm. It was amazing when they redid that number for the 20th, or actually I believe it was 21st mm-hmm. anniversary reunion concert of Merrily mm-hmm. Roll Along. And now it was even more amazing in 2019. Uh, so that alone would have been reason enough to attend this, but there were so many wonderful reminiscences by uh, so many different people. Laura Linney spoke uh, and she had a unique perspective because she never once worked with Hal Prince. She knew his children very well. And she talked about him uh, from the perspective of what a wonderful father he was, Uh, how he somehow managed to be a wonderful father, uh, (laughs) you know, despite, uh, e- even while directing or, or producing scores and scores and scores of shows. And uh, he apparently was really good at that as well. Stephen Sondheim spoke about how um, nervous Mr. Prince was on the, uh, well, moving up to his wedding and uh, that's that, Sondheim had to try to calm him down. And then, but then uh, Sondheim said that on the day of the wedding that uh, Mr. Prince showed up at the ceremony with a script in his hand (laughs) and Sondheim had to like uh, gently remove it from his hand and say, say, well, you know, let give this to me for now and we can talk about it later. (laughs) But that was, Oh, and Carol Burnett, uh, so many, so many people that Mr. Prince worked with. Uh, Carol Burnett spoke about how he loved her play uh, that she wrote with her daughter, Carrie Fisher, Hollywood Arms. He loved it so much that he wanted to direct it himself. She never expected that, that, uh, but he, he insisted on it and they did the show and they did it on Broadway and it was not a hit, but lots of people loved it. And it won a Tony award for Michelle Park and, uh, and, Ms. Burnett just said that it meant the world to her that he believed in her and and her daughter so much, especially because Carrie died during during the during that time, and it was turned out to be a wonderful memorial for her as well. So it was really uh, it was really a beautiful memorial service at the Majestic Theater, and I'm very very happy that I was able to be there. We will never see anyone like him again. Uh, He himself made that point. Uh, He didn't quite phrase it that way, but he said, um, those days are past because the conditions on Broadway now just don't, would not allow one person to be uh, so influential. Uh, But I was thinking also, one could even say that there was no one, I, you know, I'm hesitant to say this, but there was no one even before him who was comparable. Uh, not even his own mentor, George Abbott, mm-hmm. but he's the closest I can think of because mm-hmm. he really had a quite a quite a great influence over decades. Um, but even there, in terms of um, uh, quantity and ultimately even quality, I, I don't think it quite quite measures up. Uh, so. 
I think it measures up in in quantity, but not definitely not quality. And for that matter, um, <clears throat> producing and directing. Think about it. I mean, it, it, those are two enormous tasks. Oh, absolutely. The biggest ones, you know, I mean, and I think Abbott occasionally produced and um, but he more often directed and left it at that. And um, while, of course, Abbott did many musicals, most of the credits he had um, were for straight plays and usually um, light comedies, usually. So, um, so really, um, Hell Prince is, uh, is a tough one to uh to uh, surpass, yes, indeed, um, and also Abbott. Yeah, yeah, we should, you know, for the record, Abbott also wrote, which Prince did not. So sure. they, they weren't completely comparable. But no, no, uh, and perhaps if the, if we did it as a balance sheet with assets and liabilities, it might even come out to be the same thing. But there'd be many more assets than liabilities. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, what really surprised me was. Um, the way the songs played out because um all right so what what selections did they choose all right you might think well um, the biggest name hits that he had included the pajama game and damn yankees and west side story and fiddler which at one time was the longest running show in broadway history uh so you think you'd hear something from the, nothing from those and right. then if you think about it again it makes sense because he and believe me i'm putting this word in quotation marks he only produced those and there's no question that he really always wanted to direct that was his goal that was in his soul from day one so as a result it would have to be a situation where we would have songs from shows that he directed as well as produced. Well, under those circumstances, you would think that perhaps uh, Cabaret of Follies would have the most. And Cabaret almost had the most, because indeed, um, we had that Vilcoman opening. Uh, and believe me, we blibbered, we rested, we stayed, believe me. Um, and <laughs> at the end, you know, as, as Michael pointed out, Avuda um, Sane, et cetera. So, um, but there are only a few bars at Cabaret. And, um, mm -hmm. and then Breonna uh, Pinkham came out and did a tremendous Cabaret uh, title song, as she did in Prince of Broadway um at at uh, the Friedman theater a while ago so um so cabaret gets like one and a third songs maybe one uh, an eighth songs i don't know so anyway um so follies well john mcmartin's gone so michael servers had to take over and um did the road you didn't take quite wonderfully um but that was all we heard from that score, you know, so that was surprising. Uh, Michael mentioned Sondheim was there. He was not the only one there who was born on March 22nd <laughs> because Andrew Lloyd Webber was there too. Yeah. And uh, he paid tribute. So when you say, oh, all right, well, Andrew Lloyd Webber there and we're at the Majestic and the longest running show of all time is Phantom of the Opera. In fact, in Prince's book, um, Contradictions, his first memoir, he wrote, I don't think any show is going to run longer than, than uh, Fiddler. Well, in fact, Phantom has now run more than four times longer than Fiddler. So, um, so you say, all right, well, this is his biggest success. Uh, so it's going to be um, more songs by Andrew Lloyd Webber. No, they did um, All I Ask of You. And uh, I was very glad they did that instead of Music of the Night. Frankly, All I Ask of You is my favorite song from Phantom. So I was glad to hear it. I still remember being in England in 1986 and hearing those strings waft up uh, and just being in heaven. So, um, and uh, alas, you know, we talk about a lot of people aren't there anymore. Uh, Gwen Verdon couldn't perform for obvious reasons. John Ray couldn't perform for obvious reasons. Um, so many of the Jets and Sharks are gone. So um, 
But Steve Barton, who um, originated Raul in this country, died when he was 47, yeah, you know, in 2001. Yeah. So, so Sarah Brightman's still alive, I'll grant you, but maybe she didn't want to show up because Lord Andrew was on the scene and, you know, who knows. But anyway, um, I don't know what happened. I was I wonder if Patty Lapone wasn't invited because in recent times mm. she's been uh, critical of Prince. Um, so Janet Takal came out to do Buenos Aires. Again, Patty Lapone might've had a dentist appointment for all I know, but I mean, um, but you know, what you have to remember, and I wish Patty Lapone would remember is the fact that before Vita, she hadn't been on Broadway for more than a year. And that's when she was relegated to a few walk-ons, seriously, in working. You know, so Prince only, again, quotation marks around the word, gave her the role that gave her a Tony and made her a star. Mm -hmm. You know, and ironically, her next job will be in a show that was originally produced by Harold Prince and directed by him too. And I don't think would have gotten on with many managements because that was a company was a risky show back in 1970. Believe me. So, so anyway, um, Barbara Cook's not with us. So Sierra Borges did us. Uh, will he like me from, um, she loves me. And indeed we did. And Jason Robert Brown came uh, forward and uh, introduced uh, this uh, parade and um, Brent Carver wasn't there, but, um, you've got to give credit to Caroline Carmelo who's doing Dolly on the road. I mean, she's, she had to be in Memphis the next night to open the show and yet she flew in. So, um, so they did, this is not over yet. Um, she and Tony Yazbek and it was, it was quite terrific, but, but what show yielded the most songs? Ironically enough, the biggest flop that he ever had as a musical. And that was Merrily We Roll Along 16 mm -hmm. performances. And yet it got two songs. Um, as Michael pointed out, um, Lonnie Price, Ann Morrison, again, a traveler, I think. I mean, I, I know she's been living in Sarasota for a long time. I assume she's still there. And Jim Walton came out to do Old Friends, and it was quite wonderful. And then it was followed by Our Time, in which you got so many people who worked with Prince, or people wish they had, um, all the way from uh, Lonnie Ackerman, who was in Evita, all the way down to Karen Ziemba, um, who was in Prince of Broadway. So, um, and it was really quite something. And, um, when when Joel Gray looked up and said, "Are we to say a B and toe?" Uh, looking at the picture, Hal Prince. Well, yes and no, because five hours after that event concluded, the Phantom of the Opera took that very stage mm. and reiterated the work of Harold Prince still lives on. Well, it, you know, again, I, I always do that. If only he had done this, and yeah, yeah, and just the fact that he worked with Lloyd Webber on his greatest success. Plus doing all of those shows with Sondheim, it, 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 you know, that alone <laughs> would be enough for a lifetime. Well, let me let me say this, too, because I did some homework. Um, given that uh, Phantom has had 13,278 performances um, as of today, if you add up all the performances from the first 26 shows on which Prince's name was on the window card or playbill title pages. So I'm not including when he was a assistant stage manager. I'm talking about with starting with the pajama game and going, that was in 54 going to the visit, which was almost 20 years later. If you add up all those performances, uh, Phantom of the Opera has already surpassed 20 of those 26 shows. And again, that includes Damn Yankees, Pajama Game, West Side Story, Fiddler. You know, I mean, so uh, it's pretty impressive. As I think Peter mentioned, Susan Stroman uh, put together this this tribute. And it must have been difficult for her, uh, very difficult for her and Jason Robert Brown to decide 
who would be in, you know, who to ask and who, I don't know who was available, who wasn't. I did miss, I was hoping for um, Angela Lansbury and Len Cariou. I was expecting Angela Lansbury too. Uh, yeah. And we'll never know what happened there. Or maybe we will, but anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but to say that it was star studded in the audience is just beyond I, I, Sheldon Harnick. I saw in the front row sitting next to Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, on the way out, I saw the following people talking in a group, Kevin Klein, John Cullum, Bernadette Peters, Jason Danieli, and Victor Garber. I mean, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling the people who worked with Hal Prince and they, I, we, we could go on and on. Just, <laughs> there, are, there aren't enough superlatives. There, there mm. really aren't. Mm. All right. So, uh, that, uh, uh, I was unable to make it. Uh, did you happen to note if, if there were any cameras there? Did anybody maybe... I'm told uh, that Jason, uh, Robert Brown himself, posted the uh, Our, Time, Our Time finale. Uh, I, I'm sh- I would imagine that the whole thing was captured professionally, but uh, I, I was told that, so you can search for that if you if you care to. All right. Okay, so before we wrap up for this morning and get on to the trivia question, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. This is a subscribe link. That way, each and every time there's a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to an Apple Podcast. You can listen to us in many ways iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. And one thing that I found that was really nice is that um, Jim Caruso's um, Instagram feeds got a great illustration of the the swinging Birdland Christmas special. (laughs) And it's a beautiful illustration, so I put that in the show notes as well. Thanks. So, Peter, do you have an ant? Uh, no, no, I, I have, have a question. A question? <laughs> I'll get this right one week. <laughs> so, do you have a question for this week's trivia? Sure. What statement made in a song in a 1981 quick flop musical was rebutted in 2000 by a song in a long-running hit musical? Okay, so if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Worlds to change and worlds to win.